All right, Exodus chapters 5 and 6. It's an interesting couple of chapters. Um, made me think about something I, in, in order to just kind of how, to, how to get our minds framed for what we're about to read, to understand you know, what's about to happen here. Um, here's what I came up with. I actually was watching the movie Braveheart a few weeks back with my two oldest kids. Um, wanted to expose them to it. I'm not sure if that's good parenting or not. Uh, it definitely uh, earned its R rating because of violence and bloodshed. But I, I, I think you might agree it's, it's widely considered to be one of the, one of the better movies in the last 20 years. It's a, it's a great movie, right? People love the movie Braveheart. And I was, uh, I was thinking, why do we love it? Because it is two to three hours of a lot of violence and bloodshed and heartache. Why do we love Braveheart? We love it because of the struggle, right? There, there's something about the, the, the struggle of the movie that compels us to watch and to enter into and to relate to it. It, it is really just one scene after another of things going from bad to worse. Uh, you think about it, it, it opens up and, and, you know, you've got the Scottish people who immediately are facing, uh, occupation by England, oppression. There's, there's love found and then there's love lost. There's, there's alliances forged. Then there's betrayal. There's, there's victory. There's defeat. It's just sort of this roller coaster of bad stuff happening. Just when you think something good's about to happen, bad stuff happens. And that's, that's the movie. The, the, I don't think this is a spoiler. Uh, it's history. And I think most of you have seen the movie, but even, even the hero of the movie, William Wallace, doesn't survive the movie. Right? He doesn't make it to the end. But what does make it to the end, is the noble cause, right? The noble cause endures. Even, even though William Wallace is, is executed at the end of the movie, he, his cry for freedom isn't quenched because as the lights go dark, the text tells us the true history of what happened and the Scots did get their freedom, right? The noble cause endured, and, and that's what makes the movie so good. That's why we walk out after two and a half hours of bloodshed and violence and feel good about it. Because good and good prevails, right? Um, and 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 conversely, it wouldn't be a very good movie if William Wallace walks into the throne room of of Edward the First, Longshanks, right, the the English king, walks in and says, "We demand our freedom," and the king were to stand up and say, "Yeah, that's great, no problem. You guys, have a good day." The end. Roll credits. That would not be a, that would be a terrible movie. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to see that movie. We wouldn't be compelled by that movie, right? Um, <laughs> why am I telling you this? Because it's good to re- be reminded that sometimes things get harder before they get better. Sometimes things get harder before they get better. And, and when they do, it often serves to tell a more beautiful story. Right? It often serves to, to tell a, a, a more compelling and glorious story, especially when you have the confidence that the noble cause will endure. That's the main takeaway from Exodus chapter 5 and 6. This is, this is a, a scene where life is about to get harder 
for the people of Israel. And it surprises us a little bit because we just finished chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 4, things seem to be getting a lot better for them. They're in slavery and servitude, but, but God comes to Moses and he says to Moses, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to liberate the people. Go and tell the elders of Israel. They're going to believe you. And he does, and, and, and they do believe. And there's this sense of celebration and like, all right, God is on the move. And so we expect things to have a trajectory of, of upward movement here. And then we get to chapter five and it falls. It gets yanked out. And we might be left thinking, what is going on? How do we think about God in all of this? And yet we can relate, right? I titled the sermon, When Following God Makes Life Harder. And I think some of you go, man, that's a story of my life. How many of you have found it to be true that following after God brought about more difficulty in your life than you thought you had before? The person who shared the gospel with me told me about freedom and, and peace and oneness with Christ, and that all sounded good. And then, and then what happens is you, 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 you place your faith in Christ and your family rejects you? You, you, you trust Christ, you say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm with you and I'm, I'm, I'm expecting the redemption that you bring and the world mocks. Maybe, maybe things at work got real difficult all of a sudden because your whole career track was, was, was perhaps rooted in something that you, you now realize was really opposed to following God. And so you have to make a decision and, and, and you decide to walk away from that and, and, and now your finances are in the tank. The mortgage is due next month and you're thinking, this is hard. God, I, I trust you with my life and then, and then God says, I'm going to allow you to go through disease and sickness that you weren't experiencing before. I mean, these, these things happen. And again, what do we do with that? How, how do we think about God when that happens? That's what these chapters are about. All right? So I'm going to read all the way through it. I want to ask you to just grab your Bibles and, and follow along with me. Chapter 5. Afterward, and the afterward is referring back to, again, this scene at the end of chapter 4 where Moses and Aaron have told the Israelites about the deliverance of God and everybody's happy and excited about it. After that, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work 
Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. No, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your own straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet you say, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are beaten! But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. We'll stop there. Again, we've just had the burning bush moment. God has given to Moses this call, you're going to go. You're going to lead my people out of their slavery in Egypt. I'm going to take you to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to do this thing. He, he makes it very clear exactly how the whole thing is going to play out. And, and, and when they go and tell the people of Israel again, they respond with such excitement. You, you get the sense again of, 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 of revival in the people of God. There's joy in the camp, right? There's, there's excitement here. And, and you can almost feel the confident swagger of Moses and Aaron in the beginning of chapter 5. Verse 1, they, they go into Pharaoh. They, they, they walk into the king's courtroom and they just demand it. 
the Lord says, let my people go. Right? You could feel like the God has a word for you, Pharaoh. And I th- I'm sure that's what they're feeling because they're coming in off of this high of the, of the people believing the word, right? God's going to do it. God's going to do it. And yet the rest of the text here shows us the response to the swagger and the, and the proclamation. There's Pharaoh's response. There's Israel's response then to that. There's Moses' response to them. And then finally, we'll look at chapter 6 and we'll see God's response to all of them. Okay? Let's start with, the, with Pharaoh's response. And again, this is the beginning part of, of chapter 5, verse 2. After this, this great swagger-like proclamation, there's this popping of the balloon, right? Because Pharaoh just goes, who's Yahweh? The Lord, in your English texts, is Yahweh in the Hebrew text. That's his name. That's God's name. And so, so Moses and Aaron say, Yahweh has sent us to say this to you. Let my people go. And, and, and the first reaction from Pharaoh is, never heard of him. Who? Why should I care what Yahweh thinks? Why should I do what Yahweh says when I never heard of the guy? You can imagine Moses and Aaron's demeanor. Their, their mouths probably dropped, kind of like, uh, <laughs> not what they were expecting. What, what's, what's happening here? What's, what's Pharaoh doing? Well, I think two things. First of all, this is sort of the epitome of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 2 to 3, says this. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? So, so there's, this, there's this recognition by the Scriptures that, that the, the rulers of this earth have their hearts set against the ruler of the universe. There's a battle going on between the, the hearts of flesh and, and the Lord God Himself. And, and so typically the rulers of this world say, uh, who's, who's He to tell, to tell us, kings, what to do, what to think, how to act? Pharaoh is, is the epitome of, of Psalm 2 here. But I think more than that, it's, it's that Pharaoh is indicative of any self-sufficient unbeliever. This is the natural sinful reaction to the declaration of God that I'm in control, right? I am Yahweh. Let my people go. Do as I say. I am God. I am the Lord. And and the unbelieving heart so often says, who are you and why do I need you? We, We see in the, in the, unbelieving heart so often an an opposition to to God's sovereignty and God's values that just really looks like the complete opposite of who he is and what he demands of his created ones his image bearers and and we see that kind of worked out here through these verses here's Pharaoh saying um 
you, you've just come to me and said that, that God has asked that you serve Him. And I'm telling you, no, you're here to serve me. And we've talked about this already. The word serve here translated in our English is the same word in Hebrew that's translated as worship throughout this book. So we see the serve or worship. It's usually the same word. Here's Pharaoh saying, there, there's, a, there's a very uh, stark difference here between what you're saying is that there's a God who demands worship of him. I'm telling you, I demand worship of me. The ways of the world, not this Yahweh. And, and look at the difference in, in what that kind of worship looks like. The request that Moses and Aaron are making is saying God's definition of worship is that his people are able to come out and rest. To leave their work, to go outside of the city, into the wilderness, and, and to serve God there apart from work. And Pharaoh saying, no, that's a wrong view of worship. I'm saying you worship me and my worship demands get back to work. Which is this perfect picture of the difference between a fleshly understanding of worship. We're so driven by our idolatries that always are demanding that we earn it, that we achieve it, that we work, that we work, that we work. And and hear God saying worship True worship of me it involves rest from work. And, and then you get this sense of, of, of a totally different sense of morality. What does Pharaoh say? He says, you know, you know what the problem is? The problem is, is you're, you're lazy. Your God is asking you to do something that's just lazy, which is, which is what? It's, it's like a character flaw. It's a moral judgment. You are idle people. Your, your God is immoral. And ultimately, he calls God's word a lie. Get them back to work so that they don't have time to listen to these lies anymore. God's word is a lie. God himself is a liar. And therein you have the, the stark difference between the world's understanding of reality and the Lord's understanding of reality. They're, they're, they're totally opposite approaches. God says worship is restful. It's, in, it's coming to me. It's finding rest in me. It's what he's been declaring all along. I'm the one who's going to be your deliverance. And Pharaoh representing the way of the world saying, no, it's about work, work, work. It's about ignoring Yahweh and about making the systems and the kingdoms of the earth the priority. This is morally acceptable. That's morally reprehensible. And we see it today. Right? Two opposite definitions of freedom. Pharaoh saying, freedom is found in not following after this immoral God who's declaring that you should rest in Him. True humanity is in doing work and subscribing to the systems of the world. And God's saying, no, true freedom is breaking from the work of the world and finding your rest in Me. So here's the question. As Moses and Aaron are standing there with their mouths wide open, which one are they going to believe? Which one will the people believe? 
you know, we, we get to verses 10 through 14, and we see that Pharaoh's uh, decree here is just to make their lives miserable. I'm going to show you how lazy you are. I'm going to make you work harder and harder. See, he takes the straw away. They've got to still make the same number of bricks, but they, they're not going to be provided with the straw to do it. They have to now take more time to go gather their own straw and meet the quota. It's, it's, it's an impossible task. They can't stand up under it here, right? And, and, so, and so what's happening here is there's, there's friction happening. In other words, what Pharaoh's saying is if you're going to follow after the ways of your God, it's going to put you at odds with me, with the way of the world, and there will be friction. Now, as Christians, I think we cognitively understand this, right? Yeah, that, that, that actually, we, we get that. Like The Bible tells us over and over again, those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There, there, there will be friction. It's the narrow gate that we enter into, right? Uh, there, there's going to be friction, but, but here's the thing. We get it cognitively, but, but when the rubber meets the road and it actually happens, and you're actually experiencing that friction, what do you do? Does what you believe here filter down to how you believe here and actually can you stand up under it? Well, let's look at Israel's response and, and let's see how they, they, they handled it when the rubber met the road and friction occurred. Again, we get down to ver- verse 15. And the foremen of the people of Israel cry out to Pharaoh, why, why are you treating us like this? Right? They, they make their plea. You, you've, you've told us make more bricks. You, you, you've get taken away our straw. You're beating us. This isn't our fault that we can't meet the quota. Right? This is your decision to make. And then Pharaoh goes on to basically say, too bad, you're lazy. And, and then they go from blaming the Egyptians to blaming Moses. Right? Now, now here's the thing. We should have expected Pharaoh to respond the way that he did, but Israel's response is somewhat surprising. And here's why. They should have known that Pharaoh was going to say no. They should have known that he was going to respond the way he did. Remember in chapter 4, verse 30, God is, 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 is giving this, I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going to lay out. And Aaron, in verse 30, says, all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses to the people. And one of the things that God said to Moses was, Pharaoh's going to say no. He's not going to listen to you except by my hand being mighty upon him. That's how it's going to play out. They should have known that the first go around wasn't going to go very well, but they forgot. Now, that's not to say that they shouldn't be stressed by their circumstances. I mean, this is understandably difficult for them. But the, but the question here is, where will you go and what will you do when things get hard? Where's your hope for deliverance? Where should they have gone? To whom should they have gone to first place when things got harder, not better? Where should they have cried out for help? Kind of obvious, right? God. But where do they go? They go to Pharaoh. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with that. If, if they thought they were going to find mercy from a man opposed to God, they were gravely mistaken. And how often do we do that? Think about that. 
Right? Things get difficult. There's friction in the world. It's, it's, we, we rub up against it as, as people who are trying to follow hard after the Lord. And we, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances and, and friction happens. And, and so often, what, where is it that we look to find mercy? We, we, we go to the very evil systems that are making our lives difficult and try to plead with them rather than going first and foremost to the God who is the giver of mercy. And that's what they do. You know, they're getting sifted here. And, and when we get sifted, it often reveals our true hearts. It, it reveals where we look for security. Where we place our trust. And, 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 and this isn't something that we should just glance over here without evaluating ourselves. When we get sifted, when you get sifted, it reveals your heart because it's going to show you where you find security. Right? I see this time and time again in myself, and I see it time and time again in other people as I pastorally counsel them. We, we so often move from verse 31 of chapter 4, excitement, believing God's going to deliver us, yes, gospel truth, to immediately verse 21 of chapter 5, complaining. And it, and it happens in the blink of an eye when our circumstances change. Does that describe you at all? When you, you, you get what you want, you're a passionate Christian. God is good. And then you don't get what you want and you, you turn into a miserable complainer. You go from praising God to criticizing God depending on whether everything is going according to the way you think it ought to go. And you don't when it doesn't go according to the way you think it ought to go. And, and here's the thing. If that's the measure of your trust in God, it only happens when it's going well for you and not when it's not. You're never trusting God. Who should they have been blaming? They should have been blaming Pharaoh. They kind of do. But then who do they really blame? Verse 20 they meet Moses and Aaron waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they say, the Lord look on you and judge. You made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. This is your fault. Moses, this is crazy, right? But it's so often the case. Sometimes God's people act like slavery with, with a little bit of comfort is better than real freedom if it means a little bit of struggle. And instead of blaming the sin of the world for the conflict, for the friction, we blame God and His leaders for exposing the friction to us. If we hadn't been aware that there was another way to live here, that there was a different kind of reality, that there was a true freedom in God, we could have just been content to live in our, in our slavery and not really known any better. And we, you know... Now that we know there's friction, man, it's making life more difficult. You know, it would be a little easier, leaders, Moses, if you just tone it down a little bit and just kind of acquiesce to the ways of the world a little bit more. Let's just not make such a big deal about the difference between God's way and the way of the world. Let's, let's, let's tone it down a little bit here and just like get the friction away. That's what they're saying. 
they got to make a decision here. Are they going to despair? Or are they going to trust in God? Then we see Moses' response, thirdly. We saw Pharaoh's, we saw Israel's. Moses' response, verse 22, he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you send me? (laughs) I kept telling you, send somebody else, by the way, remember? Why me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to them, and you have not delivered your people at all. Ouch. You know, a couple things. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Moses' response because, frankly, it's not that different from the rest of Israel's response. But a couple things. Firstly, good. He did seek the Lord first. Okay? They, they went to Pharaoh first. They came to him. He went to the Lord. That's good, but, but not so good as he blames God too. Right? He's forgotten what God said to him at the burning bush. Moses, this is how it's going to play out. I am going to deliver my people, but Pharaoh's going to say no. I'm going to have to come in with a heavy hand. I'm going to have to do this, and I will do it. And here's Moses on on round one going, you're not delivering anybody. He forgot. So Moses has to make a decision too. Is he going to despair or is he going to trust God? And and as a leader, he's got to ask this, am I going to take courage and lead anyway? Despite the lack of the faith of the Israelites that I'm trying to lead, am I going to, to take courage and lead anyway? Who am I going to place my confidence in and my trust in? These are very human questions. And I, I think we can all relate to them. I hope as you're sitting here, you're thinking, man, I, I, I hear myself in those things. I hear my doubt in those things. I, I hear my, my complaining in those things. I, I, I forget. I doubt whether God really is for his promises. I can relate to that. I can relate to Moses. I don't know if, if, if all of us can relate to Moses, but I can. Because <laughs> I, I know what it's like to not only have those doubts for yourself, but to hear the doubts of all the other people in your congregation and be like, God, come on. I'm trying to tell them good news here and you're not backing me up. Things got hard. So how does God respond? Chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is not news, by the way. This is just him repeating again what he's already said. Pharaoh's going to let them go. With a strong hand he's going to do it. I've said this before, Moses. Now you're going to see it. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Yahweh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I I, I didn't say to them, I am Yahweh. He, he, He didn't. 
He, he made himself known as Elohim, God Almighty. But, but he's saying to Moses, I've said something to you I haven't said to them yet. I, remember intimacy, Moses. I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. This is special. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. This is all repetitious of what he's already said to Moses. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh, the Lord. Now, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. That was kind of a surprising ending to that scene, wasn't it? You were expecting God to say, I will, I will, I said, I promised, and Moses to go, yes, I remember. All right, Israel, come on, God said. And they're like, you're right, Moses, you're right, we believe. That's not what happened. They're so devastated, so broken, that they're like, Let's get to that in a minute. What God said is so valid here. What God said is so important to them. He, he's basically answering Pharaoh's question. right? At the beginning of, of chapter 5, Moses says, the Lord says, let my people go. And Yahweh's like, or Pharaoh's like, who's, who's Yahweh? Who's the Lord? Never heard of him, right? Here's God saying, you want to know who I am? Here I am. To Pharaoh, I'm going to show you who I am. Verse 1 of chapter 6, in judgment, you're going to do it. I am going to accomplish this by my heavy hand against you. This is how you're going to know who Yahweh is. That's what he's saying in verse 1. And then he says to Israel, the rest of the verses, 2 through 9, here's how you're going to know who Yahweh is. Because I'm sensing that you don't really know either, Israel. Here's how you're going to know. I'm going to show you deliverance. I'm going to show Pharaoh judgment and he'll get it. He'll know who I am. I'm going to show you deliverance and you're going to get it. You're going to know who I am because that's who I am. I'm the God who delivers you. That's who Yahweh is. 
Now, we could key in on a lot of words here that he says and a lot of I wills, but I want to key in on one extremely important word in verse 6. He says, I will redeem you. Incredibly important word, incredibly wonderful word, and it's the first time we really see it in Scripture. Other than a, than a, a mention of, of redemption in, in, uh, in this conversation that God has with Jacob back in Genesis, I think it's 48, we don't hear redemption language at all in the Scriptures until this point, and then from this point on, it becomes really prominent. Really prominent. And what does it mean? God says, I will redeem you. This, this idea of a redeemer doesn't... It, 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 we, we get the idea that it means like something like you purchase something, right? You cash something in. You redeem a coupon or something, right? But, but in... in their minds and their thinking, a redeemer was, was a person who was associated with the broader family. And, and the role of the redeemer was to be the family protector, to be the family champion. If you got into debt and you couldn't get out of it, the family redeemer would come in and spare no expense to get you out of that trouble. If a family member was murdered, it was the responsibility of the Redeemer to go bring the murderer to justice. If your, uh, if your husband dies, and in this culture, if your husband dies, you're, you're in trouble. You don't have a provider, right? So the Redeemer's role is to come in and be your provider from now on. I mean, the, he, the, there's, a, there's a role of a Redeemer that's significantly huge here in that they are the protector and the avenger and the champion of the people. And so what's God saying to you? He's saying, look, you're in the midst of hardship. You got debt that you can't get out of. You, you, you've got slavery that you can't get freed of here. You're, you're in trouble here. What can you believe in the midst of hardship? Here's what you can believe. I am the family champion who will do whatever it takes to get you out. That's who I am. I will. The Redeemer didn't have a choice. It wasn't like, well, you have the option, Redeemer, to go in and do this. No, they would do it. And God is saying, that's who I am. I will bend over backwards to spare no expense to deliver you. And so what's Israel being asked to do here? God's saying, look forward. You're looking back. It, it's, it's been pretty bleak. You're looking presently. It's getting harder. Look forward. I will redeem. Look forward. Believe. But then we get to verses 9 and 12, and we see they faltered. They faltered because of their broken hearts, it says. Their broken spirits. Listen, man, I, I, I just that hit me like a truck as I was studying this. Can you relate? I know some of you can relate. It's one of the greatest challenges of my ministry. It really is. I mean, I, I, I shed tears regularly over this reality that, that, that there are people who are so broken they can't hear the promise of God. And I, and I mean, when I said earlier, I can relate to Moses, I can. I, I, I can relate to saying, oh Lord, where... 
Where are you? What, why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you send me to do this, by the way? To, to, to shoulder these burdens with folks? I, ever since I've come, the, the pharaohs of life have done evil to them, and you're not redeeming them. You're not delivering them. I relate. I know some of you relate. And here's why. Sometimes people are just so broken they can't hear the promises of God. God knows that. About 130 years ago, the great Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this text. I read it this week. You know what he titled his sermon? He titled it, To the Saddest of the Sad. What did I title mine? When following God makes life harder? I thought that was negative. His was, his was, he wins, right? To the saddest of the sad. He, he puts his finger on the nail of, of the hearts of broken people. And then he said this. He said, some cannot receive Christ because they're so full of anguish and are so crushed in spirit that they cannot find strength enough of mind to entertain a hope that by any possibility salvation can come to them. He continues, the, the mere struggle to exist exhausted all their energy and destroyed all their hope. He says, I, I, don't, I don't wonder that a great many are unable to receive the gospel in this city of ours because their struggle for existence is awful. I'm afraid it, it gets more and more intense. Though even now, as it, it passes all, all bounds, all boundaries, it, if any of you can do anything to help the toil-worn workers, he says, I pray you do it. And yet, dear friend, if, if such a one is coming here tonight, if any of you are, are, are in this worn-out state, he says, I pray you don't throw away the next world because you have so little of this world. I mean, he, he understands, right? Sometimes we get so wounded and so crushed that we just can't seem to hear. And this is where Israel's at. They're in this sad state. And God says, look forward. Look forward. Your Redeemer is coming. And here's the thing, church. If you can relate to that brokenness, I have good news for you. You've got something better than look forward. You have something better than look forward. You can look back. You can look back because the Redeemer and the redemption that God is talking about has been fulfilled. We read it earlier as we were singing, Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Born of woman, born under the law. In other words, just like us, He came in the flesh to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. 
So you're no longer a slave, but a son, but a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. I love that promise. Listen, we're not told, look forward, I will do this. We're told, look back, I did do it. I did do it. I did do it. In in your discouragement, remember, you have a Redeemer. That's your confidence. That's how you know who God is. You want to know how you'll know who Yahweh is? I will redeem you. You want to know now how you have confidence that you know who he did, who he is? He did redeem you. God's name is Jesus. He's a sovereign king who remembers his promises and redeems his people. And, 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 and go back to, to the Braveheart analogy, all right? I, life is, is, is difficult. It can get hard. It can get ugly in so many ways. But, but when the story is told, when the story is told and the credits roll, there is a greater beauty to be revealed and appreciated through the patience of suffering. I don't totally understand that. But I believe that that's exactly what God is saying to his people. You know, it's interesting. We get to Exodus chapter 9, which we'll actually cover next week. But, but, but this is what he says to, to Pharaoh. He says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have already done that, Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, I could have done this a lot quicker and a lot easier, but I have a better purpose in the way I'm doing it and the timing of it and the difficulty of it and raising up Pharaoh, you to be a jerk in the world and to cause friction for my people. There's a reason I'm doing that because through that, I will be glorified in a bigger way. I don't understand that totally. I kind of get it. I don't totally get it. God gets it. And he's saying, he's saying to his people, that's my story. That's how I'm writing the story. My glory will be revealed in bigger ways. And that's good for you. That's good for us. Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Comparing. It's not worth comparing. How do you compare something? You've, you've got to see the difference. And in seeing the suffering and seeing the waiting and seeing the difficulty, it, it, it means that when God reveals the glory, it's that much better because we've seen the difference. And that's how he loves us. That's how he showers us with goodness. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You will rejoice and be glad in greater measure when the glory of God is fully revealed because you've suffered with Christ through the hardship. That's the way God works. And through it, never doubt that he's in control, that he's working this out, and that he will deliver you because in Christ he did.
Who, you, who will you trust? Father, I just pray that you help us to believe what you've just told us. We, we confess that we are so like Israel and so like Moses. It's so hard to see through the, the immediacy of suffering and waiting and friction and hardship. And we can be tempted to blame you, God, as if you've somehow forgotten us. So help us to remember that you never forget. You never forget. You never forget your people. You never forget your promises. You're working all things in due time for your glory and the proof and the confidence that we have in our redemption is already, it's already been given in Christ. We already have been set free from the greatest enslavement we'll ever know. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can break the covenant that you've made with us. We are yours. Help us to believe that and to endure the friction in the meantime. Help us to see the glory in it. Maybe if it's helpful, Lord, help us to think about something like Braveheart. We have to remember, you know, the, the, the end of the story is good. Just encourage us, Lord, with your faithfulness and your love and your might. And build up a broken people. Lord, we are so broken. Build us up to, to believe, to hold on to you, and to be okay. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, many of whom need it far more than I, I could even express. But I thank you that you know that, and you hear it, and you've acted. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every week I get up here and I say, go in peace. And I mean it every week, but I want to sort of mean it more than ever today. Okay? We have peace in Christ. We have a Redeemer. So go in Him. Go in peace. And uh, may God encourage you this week with the reality of the Gospel. Amen? Have a good week.